This week on the show, we cover Nextcloud on OpenBSD, Understanding the Origins of D-Trace, another article by Clara, Bastille templates for FreeBSD jails, initial support for guided disk encryption in the OpenBSD installer, DHCP, and what cool things you can do with OpenBSD's implementation of it, OpenBSD's storage management tutorial at BSD CAN by Michael W. Lucas, as well as his columns, article, or collection of books from his journal writings, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 501, Boot That Snapshot, recorded on the 15th of March 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to our fresh out of the oven episode as we record this at least uh we have interesting headlines for you and a packed episode with good content from around the bsd space so let's head right into it the first one is nextcloud plus openbsd equals love yeah so on their post here i think this is from the maintainer of the nextcloud port for openbsd says Looks like everything is made of clouds and farts now. <laughs> so we cannot uh, be out of this until we keep up with the trends. And as the maintainer of the Nextcloud port for quite a few years now, i am uh, been using it since then. And to be honest, it's pretty cool and handy, despite all of its slowness and other flavors of systems that have OpenBSD's issues as client and server. Uh, so on. Uh, but he said it works really well uh, in every way I use it, which is as a multimedia cloud, as a CalDAV card dev server for his Android phone, uh, a password manager, and for backups in general. So getting it installed, as I explained before in other articles, I like to keep uh, using the base system as much as I can, and I like minimal stuff, uh, and I like minimalism and OpenBSD uh, as much as possible. So the setup task uh, will be with RelayD in front and then HTTPD behind. And the only packages we'll need are Nextcloud. Uh, the rest of it comes with it. So they do as package add Nextcloud, and that pulls in Nextcloud after they pick uh, the version uh, and that happens. And they say, I recommend if you're using dash current, use the highest version. It will be the one keeping, uh, that'll keep getting updates the longest and changing to a new major version of the port uh, is a bit of an upgrade. So you probably want to start with the newest version so that you have more grace time before you have to upgrade. As always, I will not explain to you in details of what's going on. That's what the readme is for. Uh, but, uh, and they explain where that'll get installed. But if you read the file, you'll see that there's an example file uh, for the HTBD built into OpenBSD already. And you can just grab that version of it uh, rather than having to try to copy paste off a website in this way. The example will always be up to date with the, the port. So they have their HTTP config where they set up, you know, cloud.theirdomain listening on port 443 with TLS, set up the well-known directory for Acme and, and get that going so they'll have Let's Encrypt, set their root directory to slash nextcloud uh, and configure the SSL certificate and so on. Then they block a number of uh, specific directories to stop a bunch of nonsense that the web is always throwing at your nextcloud. And then they set up 
core apps, dist, and all the other basic stuff, and set up the specific, special endpoints for their DAV and uh, other providers. Next, uh, setting up the config.php for Nextcloud itself. Uh, for a database, they're using Postgres and Redis, uh, and so they don't really have any special setup, so they just point things at that. Uh, and they set up their trusted domains and trusted proxies so that the RelayD will be able to spoof the IP address and all that. Uh, and they say using memcache with the Redis backend to make Nextcloud faster. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're also using the file system check changes line, uh, configuring that so that it'll watch for the files to change on the underlying file system as well. And then they configure mail to send mail and authenticate uh, to their local mail server. And then they can uh, do the app install overwrite where they're uh, forcing which apps they want enabled, including the calendar, uh, some uh, brute force protection, two-factor via YubiKey or U2F, uh, and the duplicate finder. And they show how to turn it uh, in and out of maintenance mode for when you need to do upgrades to it and stop people changing stuff while you're doing that. Uh, and they also show how to uh, go through and gzip all of the uh, JavaScript and CSS files. So instead of uh, HTTPD having to gzip those on the fly, you can make .gz versions of them and tell the web server gzip-static and it will know that there's a gzip version on disk already so that you're not re-gzipping the same files over and over again, wasting CPU time. They also show how to do an upgrade. So in this case, they want to upgrade from one version of Nextcloud to another and getting that set up. And then they also talk about uh, CSB headers and uh, all the certificates and getting all that set up so that uh, everything's trusted and the certificates work as we want, making all the apps work. And they also then get into a discussion about which TLS ciphers they want to support and all that. And then uh, the RelayD config, and then showing RelayCTL and seeing how that's all set up and the monitoring, and it's good to go. So now they have uh, a working Nextcloud setup on OpenBSD using the built-in RelayD and web server. Oh yeah, very nice, mm -hmm. all with OpenBSD components. Yep. Very good. All right, the next article here is from the FreeBSD history series from Clara's website, Understanding the Origins of D-Trace. And I'm reading it because the author sits, well, not right next to me, but on the other side of the other microphone. Uh, how do you find the time to write articles? I don't know. Okay. Um, D-Trace is a powerful tool for system administrators. It starts with to diagnose system issues without unduly impacting performance. It was created because of a desperate need by a team of three engineers from Sun Microsystems, Brian Cantrell, Adam Leventhal, and Mike Shapiro. A star is born. It's the first headline. I like this already. Uh, according to D-Trace, the reverse engineer's unexpected Swiss army knife by Tiller Bouchon, hopefully that's correct, and David Weston, developed, uh, development of D-Trace started in 2001. At the time, Cantrell was the sole developer. Leventhal and Shapiro joined the effort later, the changelog shows that D-Trace was first released in Sun Solaris 10 in 2004. In 2006, Cantrell talked to Tech Republic about how D-Trace came about. The initial idea was sparked in 1997 when Sun ran into a problem while benchmarking a new system. And wasn't that exactly the, the Cantrell interview from BSD Now where he re 
reported about uh, that? Not all of it, but I think one that would have been one of the stories we talked about, yes. Yeah, okay. So Cantrell talked further about D-Trace's origins in an interview with Lightstep's Ben Siegelman. And Cantrell said that D-Trace came out of a simple problem they had. <clears throat> if a complicated system is doing something unexpected, how do you determine what is it doing and why without taking the system down? Why is the system not operating as well as we think it should be? It's not crashing. It's operating. But we want it to be operating much more effect efficiently. Unquote. So Cantrell also remarked that, quote, the debugging literature prior to that was really focused on debugging systems in development as opposed to actual examined systems in production, unquote. Yeah, well, because the uh, big two things are, you know, uh, most applications have some kind of debug mode, but when it's in that debug mode, it's much slower. And, it, you know, that might cause the problem not to happen uh, or other things. And, you know, it just might not be fast enough to, to run in production that way to find the problem. But also, if if a program is entering a this weird state where it's doing something unexpected, but you know or suspect that if you restart it to put it in debug mode or just restart it in general, the problem might go away. And then you've just destroyed all the evidence. So now how are you going to track down what the problem was? And then that's how you end up with computer systems where the answer to the problem is just, oh, just reboot it. And you can never figure out why, because in order to put it into a mode that might tell you the answer, you have to reboot it, and that makes the problem go away for some unknown amount of time. Uh, and, you know, especially at the debug, you can't leave it in debug mode for long term. And so that's where Dtrace comes in, being able to kind of basically dynamically patch the application while it's running in order to get some debug output and find out what it's doing uh, without destroying the state of the running application. Yeah. And Kendra also said that they had to make sure D-Trace was implemented in such a way that it would not panic or crash the system. Because, well, if you run a tool and the system dies as a result, you will never be allowed to run that tool again. And so that uh, was the birth of D-Trace. And so other systems add support. macOS was one of the first non-Solaris operating systems to add support for D-Trace in 2007 as macOS 10.5 Leopard. Apple was in, uh, also included a graphical tool named Instrument to make D-Trace more user-friendly. And D-Trace became part of the FreeBSD operating system with the release of FreeBSD 7.1 in 2009, two years before Oracle began porting D-Trace and nine years before Oracle eventually solved the inherent CDDL versus GPL licensing conflict by adding a GPL v2 dual license option to the kernel space portion that they now owned and a UPL license for the formerly proprietary user space tools. Shortly after Oracle purchased some microsystems in 2010, several key OpenSolaris developers announced the creation of Elomos, an open-source fork of OpenSolaris, which included D-Trace. This fork was based on the OpenSolaris OS-net consolidation. In 2018, Oracle's Linux port of D-Trace hit the 1.0 milestone. Oracle is still working to improve this version with, released, or with releases in 2020. Up to this point, each port was maintained separately, with the Elomos, Apple, and FreeBSD versions of D-Trace drifting apart, and the Oracle maintained and developed project being entirely separate. That changed in 2016 when the Open D-Trace project appeared on GitHub. And so then, uh, what can D-Trace do for me? There's also mention about the D-Trace port on Windows, uh, but uh, let's focus on what can D-Trace do for you. The goal of D-Trace is to be able to dynamically instrument a system. Traditionally, operating systems had debugging features, a flag you would enable at a build or boot time to output verbose messages about what the system was doing to be able to investigate issues. Traditional debuggers also generally needed to be enabled when the software was being compiled or started. 
So if a problem cropped up while the system was running, as Alan mentioned, the only way to make uh, or to try to investigate it was to restart with debugging enabled. That would cripple performance and possibly make the cause of the issue go away. And then they talk a bit about using DTrace, like loading the module, in this case on FreeBSD. Then you can list available probes because it's all about probes in DTrace. And then you can figure out, okay, show me all the syscalls with the read entry and print the executable name. So that tells you all the system calls that are executing during the DTrace run and will produce a nice output with listing all the executables that call this read function. Then you can also say, well, give me a nice little aggregation of this, for example, to give a like a uh, overview, like how many of those were coming from a certain application. And then you can do at exec name equals count, and that shows, in this case, Firefox is the one with 492 that fired the most of these probes. And then you can also have uh, quantified uh, buckets and say, oh, what kind of what's the distribution between certain values like for read requests are they more bigger requests or smaller requests and this is what the distribution can show you finally you can also time certain events like say create a timestamp when you enter a function and create another timestamp when you exit the function then you can subtract the two and say this function took 500 milliseconds to execute and that's how a way to optimize certain functions in your program or find out which one's slow or whatever yeah. Uh, yeah and it talks about using the aggregation functions to make histograms and and anyway article has a whole bunch of uh, interesting examples on how to just find out what's going on whether it's mm. i want to find which program is causing these reads or i want to find out you know who's tickling this thing that way or whatever yeah handy one-liners you can just copy paste from the article there's also mention of dwatch which is a bit more wrapping it up uh, the detracing vocation so you can just say dwatch execv to show all new processes uh the parent program and command executing very nice good start into the detrace chapters or the new detrace journey and it's definitely showing what systems are doing under the hood Okay, in the news roundup, we have Bastille templates for FreeBSD jails. This is another article that we translated from German, even though I could read it perfectly fine. Um, <laughs> no, this is better for our international audience to have everyone getting the same information. And Bastille templates. Yeah, uh, so it says Bastille templates are a great way to create, automate, and manage jails. It is basically extremely convenient to create a container with Bastille, but the templates make it possible to have pre-installed services, basically. In this tutorial, I would like to briefly show how we can use this uh, as a very nice jail manager on FreeBSD. So they have a link to GitLab where you can say on GitLab here, you can find a selection of already created templates for Bastille, uh, but of course you can always make your own. So creating a jail is pretty easy. Package install Bastille, Bastille bootstrap, and the version of FreeBSD you want. And then we do Bastille create triple W, uh, the version of FreeBSD, its IP address and the interface. And it will go and create that jail and you'll be good to go. Uh, but if you want to create a Bastille file, it will actually pre-populate that jail for you. So they have a, an example for Apache as a Bastille file, where we're going to say package 
uh, Apache 2.4, and that'll install that. And then sysrc, and we're going to enable uh, Apache 2.4. And then we're also going to do service uh, Apache 2.4 start, and, and so on, and make sure that the command httpd-t is running. Uh, so the, or httpd-t is the config test, so it'll make sure that works. So you can do all that, and now you can apply the template. So once you bootstrap and download the template, you can just do Bastille template, triple W, and then a pointer to the template, and now it will apply that template to that jail, and now your empty triple W jail now has Apache installed and configured. So in conclusion, uh, you may have noticed by now that uh, they're a big fan of Bastille and its possibilities, but it makes it really easy to have templated uh, containers. And the real advantage here is that rather than downloading a binary of FreeBSD with Apache already installed, you're building an empty jail of the latest version of FreeBSD and then installing the latest version of Apache rather than some binary image that's been floating around the internet for who knows how long. <laughs> Unpatched and with security holes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, this is quite nice to get started. So my initial starts with Bastille were a bit bumpy because I only figured out very, like, two hours or so that the secure uh, level is raised by default to one and I couldn't install anything for whatever reason. And that's why I figured out, ah, the secure level is up. So I uh, got all kinds of weird problems. But once you figure that out... I don't think Bastille does that by default. Uh, the one I had was Bastille really assumes it's okay to bridge to your main interface. And that doesn't work in EC2 instances. And I had to trick it into doing what I wanted it to do. Oh, yeah. That's also something I have... By having it basically bridge to a made-up tap address and then <laughs> uh, configuring it to NAT out to uh, out of the uh, the Amazon address. I think it's mostly because Amazon doesn't accept packets with the different MAC addresses that mm. it was coming from the jail or something. I forget the detail. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So next up, we have initial support for guided disk encryption in the OpenBSD installer. Oh, yeah. Over at the OpenBSD Undeadly Journal uh, from the lake. Yeah. So they say OpenBSD installer now has basic support for configuring disk encryption during the regular install process. So previously, disk encryption needed to be set up manually by dropping to the shell and doing all the steps one by one. Uh, initial support likely to be expanded upon was committed by Clemens Nani. Uh, kn at openbsd uh and so this adds initial support so uh one new question to cover the most common use case such as a manual setup is uh the shell mode or exclamation mark prior to install is no longer required uh, it will just ask do you want to encrypt the root disk and you can say which disk to encrypt or no uh, or question mark for more details uh it will create a passphrase protected by a crypto soft raid volume uh and that'll be used as the root disk. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, so using the key disk or different disciplines is not yet covered. Uh, only asking for an interactive installation, so you can't use auto install to configure encryption just yet. And uh, it's only reachable on i 36 AMD64, Spark64, and RISC64 now. Uh, the ARM bits are a work in progress. <laughs> I like the bits. Uh, They're like tested by, feedback by, and then there's at the bottom... Get it in now by Theodore Rat. <laughs> Very good. Um, this next one is the dynamic host configuration, please. Uh, also, 
but undeadly you find that another piece from Florian Obser uh, just came out titled Dynamic Host Configuration, please. That's a separate article. In there, Florian details the steps to modern OpenBSD's dynamic host configuration, including interface config, name resolution, routing, and more. We also get an explanation of the various userland programs, most of them portable, some OpenBSD-specific, that make a modern OpenBSD laptop shine. We can share the full piece here. So that's also linked there. And it's long, but definitely worth reading because it shows how you can do the newer OpenBSD's uh, DHCP server. Cool. Yeah. So it's basically almost anything can be an OpenBSD laptop as long as it has a real-time clock, it can run Emacs, it will suspend and resume, and it has working Wi-Fi. And so they get into talking about uh, what it takes to have working Wi-Fi and being able to dynamically configure things and get on the airport Wi-Fi or whatever else might be happening there. I like one of the, the first footnote reads, my phone automatically connected to the Wi-Fi at Elk Lake's cabin. Never mind that we had to drag the satellite dish over the pass. <laughs> yeah. Also talks about route priorities. Uh, so it's like with a DHCP Listy and Slack CD, uh, can handle multiple interfaces at the same time, the routing table might end up with two default routes. And then how does it decide which one? We end up with these two different routes. One gateway is reachable via Ethernet and the other uh, is reachable via the wireless with a priority of 12 versus eight. A route with higher priority uh, when its priority value is lower. Uh, so in this case, we'll prefer to send the packets over the Ethernet interface rather than the Wi-Fi, which makes sense. All things being equal, the kernel will pick the address from the Ethernet address. Uh, if we pick up the laptop and unplug the Ethernet, uh, all things no longer equal uh, will route, uh, you know, the route over EM0 is no longer usable and existing connections uh, using it will stall and time out, but new connections will instead use IWM0 and so on. But if we plug EM0 back in, sessions might come alive again and new connections will then use EM0 again. Connections that are running over IWM0 will continue working because the interface is still connected to the Wi-Fi. Uh, so applications like web browsers, email clients, or even video conferencing software can sometimes automatically establish new connections when they notice the old one has died. Unfortunately, SSH does not do that. <laughs> uh, so if switching between wired and wireless happens uh, seldomly, Tmux on the road system might be enough, uh, or maybe using a WireGuard tunnel uh, that will keep a stable connection by jumping back and forth between what the source address is. Also talks about cellular networks and how to sort out DNS in this kind of thing, uh, and then using uh, unwinding some of that DNS with Unbound and all the other things that you might have to do. And then, as as always, there's time for gelato. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, speaking of gelato, perfect bridge into the next item, which is the BSDCAN 2023 tutorial by Michael W. Lucas about OpenBSD storage management. And... If you ask what's the connection between Michael W. Lucas and Gelato, you don't know Michael W. Lucas. Um, but that's another story. So the uh, blog post goes, I'll be teaching a four-hour tutorial on OpenBSD storage management at BSDCAN 2023. As you might imagine, it's based on OpenBSD Mastery, his, one, of the, one of his latest books. So he's pleased to see BSDCAN returning to Meetspace. Yes, the pandemic is ongoing, and he doesn't blame folks who decide not to attend. The main reason he chose to attend is that the conference committee 
which he's a member of, has chosen to enforce a stringent mask policy. Yes, I know you have the right to not wear a mask in public. BSD Can is a private event for a community. However, and communities have a responsibility to protect their weakest members. People who think that your rights outweigh your responsibilities, I will delete your comments. Okay, I hope to see many of you at the con, if not my tutorial. It will be good to see many old friends. Well, at least their eyes. Faces in one of the many fine outdoor dining establishments by what market offers. Okay, definitely... I'll be there. Yeah, uh, I haven't I haven't seen Michael oh, in a yeah. while, and it'll be nice to catch up with him. Definitely looking forward to May approaching. Um, next up, we have the January February twenty twenty three column of the FreeBSD Journal. Yeah, so this is also oh, from right. Michael Lucas saying, uh, somehow I've written twenty eight we get letters columns for the FreeBSD Journal, and the latest one is now out. I'm amazed that they haven't given me the boot yet, especially as I'm attempting to channel. Michael Bywater's brilliant barge pole column from the unforgivably, unforgivably murdered uh, weekly called Punch. At best, I've achieved a tenth of barge pole's vitriolic geezerliciousness, uh, but seeing as barge pole contained enough vitriol to kill a beluga whale, uh, I expected them to ban me years ago. Uh, you can get the columns uh, for free by trawling through the old issues. But you can also grab the collection uh, that Michael has uh, built, where you actually have all of those uh, columns for the first three years uh, compiled as an ebook mm -hmm. or a physical book too, as well. Yeah, and speaking of the FreeBSD Journal and BSD Can, for the attendees, there will be a special edition of the journal uh, celebrating the 30th anniversary of FreeBSD in there, and it's beautiful i only saw a couple of pages yet but there will be plenty of good historic pieces as uh this special article so it's a printed edition and they put a lot of good work finding good authors from the people who were as old as way back when happened and so you could definitely look forward to these uh in your conference bag and next something i found from the endless stream of freebsd commits floating by about ZFS and the FreeBSD bootloader by a certain Alan Jude. Not sure who that is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I guess as of recording yesterday, but when you see this, it'll be a couple of weeks old by then. Um, I, I extended FreeBSD's bootloader and to add support for booting from a ZFS snapshot. Uh, so normally right now you can boot from a file system, uh, a, a data set in ZFS. Uh, but this allows you to boot read-only from a snapshot. Uh, so when booting from a snapshot, uh, we need to follow a slightly different code path to turn the object ID back into the name uh, for both the forward and reverse lookups. So normally in a data set, uh, we have the object, and each object then has uh, a zap, a, a key value pair uh, in ZFS, um, that contains a list of all of its children. So for example, if you have you know, uh, if you know that the data set you want to boot is called Z root, uh, or yeah, Z root slash root slash default, uh, you first uh, find the root data set. Uh, so if you look at the, the config basically of the pool, it'll tell you, you know, object ID 34 is the, the data set with the same name as the pool, right? Z root. Uh, and you look up that and in that object, it'll say, my list of children is object 72. So you open object 72 and it'll be 
you know, Z root root, uh, it'll have like root, uh, user var, all the different data sets you've created under the root mm -hmm. of your pool. And for each of those, it'll have its object number. So then we know root is object 127. Uh, so we then load that. And then its child zap will have a list of all its children, which will have default and whatever other boot environments you might have. And then we can get, eventually we get to the object ID of the data set. So now we know the object ID we need to open to open that root data set. Uh, and we can do the same in reverse. If, if we look at the bootfs property uh, on a ZFS pool, uh, while in the user interface you set it to a name, uh, actually on the pool it's just writing down a number, that object number. Uh, so then to figure out what's the name of the data set with object number 271, uh, you look up that object and you find its parent. And you go to its parent and you say, who's your parent? And who's your parent? And all the way back up to the top. And then you can walk forward again and get the names. Uh, you can do it all in one go. So um, when you, you get the, the first, the object you're looking for, you find its parent. Then you look on the its list of children and you find, okay, the name of the data set I just came from is my boot environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you go to the parent of, uh, to basically the grandparent of my boot environment and ask, and who's your children? And you find the one that matches the ID of the parent of my boot environment. And now you know the name of root and then back up to, until you get to the root of the pool. And so with these, you can go from ID to name and from name to ID and figure out what data sets are what. Uh, and it scales very nicely. But snapshots work a bit differently. Uh, when we have the object ID of the data set, the snapshots are not the same kind of children. So for the data set, the boot <clears throat> environment, you have to go into this other object, the head object. And in there, there's a zap with a list of all the snapshots. And so you had to look in a different place. Uh, so the, the patch basically says, you know, if the, when we reverse the name, if it has an at sign in it, then we know it's a snapshot and we need to do something special. Um, or when we're looking up by ID, basically if the uh, snap name uh, zap obj is zero, then we know this thing that we're looking at is a snapshot because any other a data set would have a, a key value pair of all of its snapshots, but a snapshot won't. Mm. And so if it is a snapshot, then we treat it slightly differently. And basically some changes to both the ZFS reverse lookup and the ZFS lookup functions uh, make that work. Uh, so now you can tell your system to boot from this read-only snapshot. Of course, it's a snapshot is always very read-only. You can't ever make it not read-only. So uh, what you would use this for is a little up to you. Um, the version that I'm building off this will boot from the snapshot. Then during the boot up, it will actually roll back the data set to that snapshot so that if anything was changed, it'll go away. Oh. And then it's going to switch and use that real data set that's writable as the root file system. Oh, for like a kiosk system? But only after it rolls back. Yeah, for like a kiosk hmm. system. And so when it boots up, uh, it always loads the kernel and all the boot files from the snapshot. So it definitely, you know, no matter what somebody's done to the thing, it'll boot. Uh, and then we're doing the rollback after the kernel's running, because we we don't want to try to teach the bootloader to do the rollback yeah. because you don't write to ZFS from the bootloader. Uh, so it's it allows us to put off the process of doing the rollback until later into the boot process. Uh -huh. Interesting. And it also works when I promote a clone to a real data set because that still has the 
old. So a clone and a real data set are both real data sets. Right, but it still it swaps the uh, snapshot and the clone so relation. All, all that all that promoting a clone does is change who's the copy yeah. of who. So it changes who owns the snapshot that created the clone. So normally it's the origin data set and then the clone, and that way you can delete the clone. But if you want to delete the original and keep the clone, you promote it and it moves that snapshot from being owned by the origin to be owned by the clone and basically switches it. So the old file system becomes a clone of the new file yeah. system. Uh, and then you can delete the one that you don't need uh, anymore. Doesn't own yeah. the snapshot. Yeah. Cool. And I like because basically you can't you can't delete the snapshot while the clone yeah. depends on it. So if you reverse the relationship, so the other data set depends on the clone, you can delete that other data set and then you can delete the snapshot and and you're fine. Although if you've cloned the same snapshot three times, you can't delete that snapshot until you've deleted all the other all references. The clones, or all but one of the clones and then promoted it uh, hmm. and so on. Wow. I like that it's only affecting one file and it's fairly small with 54 insertions. Yeah, it's basically just instead of looking in the list of children, it says if the data set for this that we're looking at doesn't have a snapshot list, then we know it's a snapshot. And so when we look up its name uh, in reverse, we have to look at this other list, uh, the list of snapshots instead of the list of, of children. And then going forward, it just has to be, uh, again, look for the name on the list of snapshots instead of on the list of children uh, when you get to the certain okay. point. And it's so specific to FreeBSD that it's not part of OpenZFS upstream repository? Oh, well, it's just all of these changes are in the FreeBSD bootloader. Oh, right, uh, yeah. So they, they can be pulled into a Lumos, which uses the FreeBSD bootloader, but it, it isn't helpful mm. to another yeah. operating system. Somebody could basically adapt this code to, to work with Grub or whatever, mm. uh, and they're welcome to do that. But uh, This is specific. Yeah, the, the boot code itself doesn't live in the upstream repo. Okay, so. got it. Cool. Good to have. I will definitely have a use for this, especially when things go wrong and I want to have a system that is known to work at a specific time. Well, of course, there are boot environments, but, well, having a snapshot is... Right. Uh, but yeah, this one just lets you have a, a read-only system. Now, depending on how you use it, you could use it also where you, uh, as part of the rc.conf, you mount either an MFS or a tempfs uh, to have some bits mm. be writable. Uh, and then you, you could keep the read-only root file system and just run off the snapshot yeah. forever. Uh, or uh, as the case that I'm building it for, we you just do a script during startup where you're going to roll back that data set to that snapshot and throw away the changes and then uh, use the writable file system. And next time you reboot, you'll just roll back those changes to the snapshot mm. again. It's like this little uh, firmware thing where you have a writable part and a read-only part. And yeah, yeah just keep the configs it's, in a yeah. certain, in a writable area but they don't take much space. Yeah, you could, you could do it that way if you mm -hmm. wanted as well. Because, yeah, exactly. This is only going to roll back the root partition, the boot environment part. Uh, so if you have a Postgres database running in its own data set on top of this, that won't mm -hmm. get rolled back. Because yeah. you don't want it. <laughs> but if you wanted it to, you could make it do that. But yeah, not, not for up to you. something that people are using. Very nice. Good. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated 
so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. No feedback and questions for this week, but definitely send us more. We will be happy to cover it in a future episode. Uh, anything else we would like to mention? Uh, just that if you didn't uh, already do it after last week's episode, if you have, uh, if you'd like to tell us your favorite episode of our first 500 oh, yes. episodes, uh, we're very just interested in knowing what you like. Yeah, so we can maybe try to repeat this in certain ways or if it's in a, a certain type of episode or an interview maybe then we could try to drag that person in front of the microphone again so we will try but definitely getting that feedback is good for us to know what you like as an audience okay uh i have also nothing else there's a couple conferences coming up uh we haven't heard any call for papers yet but we will report about them when that happens so that we will have people appearing at BSD conferences again. All right. See everybody next week. See you then. Well, I won't, but... <laughs>